Once upon a time, there were four church members named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. They were all members of the church body, wouldn't you say? Once the church had financial needs and everybody was asked to help out. Everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but you know who did it? Nobody. Everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Well, then the church grounds needed some work, and somebody was asked to help. But you see, somebody, he got angry because anybody could have done it just as well, and it was really everybody's job. In the end, the work was given to nobody, and nobody did a fine job. On and on this went. Whenever there was work to be done, nobody could always be counted on. Nobody visited the sick. Nobody gave liberally. Nobody shared his faith. In short, nobody was a very good church member. Finally, the day came when somebody left the church and took anybody and everybody with him. And guess who was left? That's right. Nobody. Well, Haggai was the pastor of a church full of nobodies. Nobody had time to serve the Lord. Nobody had the strength to serve the Lord. Nobody had the resources to serve the Lord. Nobody had the willingness to serve the Lord. The prophet Haggai was a somebody sent to encourage and mobilize a group of nobodies. You see, the Jews had done their time in Babylon. They had served their 70-year sentence in captivity. Now 50,000 Jews had pulled up stakes and had followed Governor Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua back to the land of their forefathers. They had high hopes for a new start. But when they arrived, Jerusalem, and in particular the Temple Mount, wasn't as they remembered, not at all. The Babylonians had defeated the Jews. They had demolished the city. They had toppled the temple. And for two centuries, the temple had been the center for Israel's national life. Now, though, it was a patch of weeds and rocks. This once glorious temple had been reduced to rubble. The people, though, were dogged. They were determined. These Babylonian Jews had left jobs, good jobs. They'd left quiet neighborhoods in response to this tremendous challenge of returning and rebuilding the house of God. They had sacrificially given to enroll in this noble endeavor. When they arrive, the very first move that they make is to collect an offering. We're told about it in Ezra chapter 2, verses 68 and 69. There it reads, according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments, or the equivalent of about $60,000. Not a bad start for a building fund, especially in 536 B.C. In the seventh month of that first year, they used the funds to build an altar, to make a sacrifice, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And over the next seven months, they hired masons and craftsmen and carpenters. They even had cedar logs shipped from Lebanon to the port of Joppa, They laid the temple's foundation in the second month of 535 B.C. But that is as far as they got. The work came to a screeching halt. They abandoned the project because they ran into opposition. You see, there were a group of people known as the Samaritans, 
a race of apostate, half-breed Jews who had moved into the region during the Jews' 70-year hiatus. These Samaritans didn't like the idea of the Jews returning and rebuilding the temple and resettling Jerusalem. And they began a campaign to hinder the work. Their efforts included infiltration, agitation, intimidation, even some litigation. They finally obtained an injunction from Persia temporarily blocking the work. Well, by this point, the Jews who had returned were tired of fighting City Hall. And they had grown more interested in their own projects. They went to work building their own homes and establishing their own businesses. And for the next 15 years, the work of, the re of rebuilding the temple was neglected. I suppose you could say they were guilty of throwing in the trowel. They, and this, of course, this grieved the hearts of the prophets. This upset Haggai and Zechariah. And the Lord used these two prophets to light a fire under the people and to recommence the temple construction. Haggai preached four sermons over four months in the fall of 520 B.C. His book is actually the transcripts of his four sermons with a few editorial comments inserted. Haggai's first sermon, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, was delivered on August the 29th. His second sermon, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, was preached 49 days later on October 17th. His third sermon, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, came on December the 18th. And we don't know why, but the prophet preached his last sermon on that very same day, chapter 2, Verses 20 through 23 was also spoken on December the 18th. Now, each of Haggai's four sermons address a different problem that was hindering the work of rebuilding the temple. And these are the same four problems that hinder you and I, that interfere with our church, that keep us from accomplishing the work that God has called us to do. In sermon number one, Haggai deals with the people's self-centeredness. In sermon number two, he addresses their short-sightedness. In sermon three, their self-righteousness. And in sermon four, he deals with their tendency to second-guess. Well, Haggai begins. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. The date on our calendar, August the 29th, 520 B.C. More importantly, notice the change in the biblical author's dating method here. You see, prior to their captivity in Babylon, the prophets reckoned time according to the Hebrew, Hebrew kings. But now Judah is no longer a kingdom. They have no king. It's now a province of Persia, and the prophet Haggai ties his dates to the Persian rulers. At that time... The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says. Now notice the Lord doesn't address the Jewish people as my people, rather as this people. He's obviously angry with them. 
You know, when I'm really proud of my kids, I talk about my kids. When I'm a little frustrated with my kids, I talk about Kathy's kids. <laughs> These kids. <laughs> well, this is God's feeling toward the Jews. He calls them this people. And the reason he's frustrated with them is because they're making excuses. Notice, the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. In the beginning, they were so eager to rebuild the temple, but opposition had discouraged them, and preoccupation with their own homes had distracted them. The Jews were now guilty of procrastinating the very purpose that had inspired them to return in the first place. And sadly, church members today can also be guilty of procrastinating God's purposes. Someone says, oh, I'll have time to serve God once I get my business up and going. Once I get it established, then I'll be able to give some time to the church. Or when I retire, then I'll become more available. Or when I get married, oh, things will be different. Or once the kids get older, then, then I'll be more involved in the church. Often, our motivation gives way to our procrastination. The story's told of an infidel who willed his farm to the devil. When he died, the probate court wondered how in the world they're going to fulfill the man's intentions. He willed it to the devil. After an extended deliberation, the court issued the following ruling. The best way to carry out the wish of the deceased is to allow the farm to grow weeds, the soil to erode, the house and barn to rot. In the court's opinion, the best way to leave something to the devil is to do nothing. Well, these Jews who returned from Babel planned to serve the Lord, but in doing nothing, actually served the devil. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? You see, the Jews had said, The time has not come that the Lord's house should be built. But they sure had time to build their own houses. In fact, they were not just building ordinary houses. They were custom-built homes. Hey, these weren't just houses. These were paneled houses. And I wonder if that paneling was cedar paneling. Remember, the book of Ezra told us that before they laid the foundation of the temple, they shipped cedar logs from Lebanon to Joppa to furnish the temple. That was 15 years previous. It makes you wonder what happened to all the cedar siding. Had they taken it? Were they using it on their own homes? Hey, if they didn't rip God off directly, they did so indirectly through their procrastination. They returned to Jerusalem with high hopes, but when they discovered that serving the Lord wasn't a cakewalk, that it was going to be hard, they retreated into the narrow world of self-centeredness. And this is the theme of Haggai's first sermon, self-centeredness. I've seen this happen all too often. Christians with good intentions suddenly realize that ministry isn't as easy as they thought. That being God's servant isn't as glamorous as they had assumed. They discover that when you serve people, often you get treated like a servant. At times you get hurt. You feel used. Ministry isn't the source of personal fulfillment that they figured it would be. Serving sometimes feels more like, well, serving. When this happens, some people bail out on the church. 
They withdraw into the world of self-absorption and self-protection. Ask them to pitch in, and all you get is excuses. When Christians serve and get hurt, they sometimes conclude that serving the Lord just isn't worth the risk. They'd rather work in their own yard than at the church, invest in their own retirement than give to the church, play and sing in their own band rather than play and sing at the church, build their own house rather than help build the church. Did you hear about the couple who sent a letter to their pastor? Sent him an email. Pastors get emails. Pastor opened it up. He read this. Dear pastor, we know you stress regular church attendance, but we think every member should be excused for the following reasons and for the number of times indicated. Christmas, Sunday before or after, one. New Year's Day, party lasted too long, one. Easter, spring break for the kids, one. July 4th, a national holiday, one. Labor Day, get away, one. Memorial Day, visit hometown, one. School closing, kids need a break, one. School opens, last fling of the summer, one. Family reunions, mine and the wife's, two. Sleep late, late night Saturday activities, four. Deaths in a family, two. Sickness, one for each family member, five. Anniversary, one. Business trips, got to make a living, four. Vacation, three. Bad weather, ice or snow or rain or fog, five. Little league games, six. Unexpected company, you can't walk out on unexpected company, three. Time changes, spring ahead, fall back, two. TV specials, Super Bowl, etc. five. He writes, pastor, that leaves us two Sundays per year. So you can count on us to be in church on the fourth Sunday in February and the third Sunday in August unless providentially hindered. Sincerely, faithful church member. Excuses, excuses, excuses. At some point they need to stop lest you forever ignore what's important. Here's what I've noticed in my 36 years as a pastor. People like coming, they even like serving as long as they can walk away from it if it gets too hard. But what the church really needs is people who'll take responsibility. I heard of the church choir that was preparing for the big Christmas cantata, the big program. The director was frustrated, though, that the choir members had inconsistent attendance at the practices. Well, the night before the big production, he was bragging on his pianist. He says, I'd like to personally thank Margie here for being the only person in this entire choir who over the last two months has not missed a single rehearsal. That's when Margie replied, well, it's the least I can do since I'm going to have to miss tomorrow night. We need church members who will take responsibility to build a temple, to build a church. You need people who can be counted on, who are willing to come, committed to come when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient, who will take on some responsibility. You need Christians who will be as serious about their tithe as they are their mortgage payment, who will be as serious about getting their kids to Sunday school as getting them to the Little League game as serious about studying their Bible as they are at hitting the gym. You need people who care enough about the temple of God to put it ahead of their own personal interests. 
Verse 5, Haggai says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, and may we do the same. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. In other words, you do all these things for yourself, and yet it doesn't satisfy you. It's never enough. You're not content. It doesn't produce joy in your life. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai is addressing the self-centeredness of his countrymen. They've been preoccupied with their own interests. But where has it gotten them? They're not truly satisfied. They're far from content. They've served only themselves, and they have nothing to show for it. Their lives haven't improved at all. What a vivid picture here Haggai paints. He who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. He who makes a lot, but he has nothing to show for it when it's done. You see, selfishness is like going shopping with a bottomless shopping bag. You stuff it with merchandise, you spend all your money, but in the end, all you got is an empty bag. God's command is simple. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. The idea here is to stop talking about what you're going to do for God and just do it. Talk is cheap. Obedience brings God glory. And God wants them to obey him now. That's why he says, go up to the mountains and bring some wood. He doesn't say, order more wood from Lebanon. Oh, I need some more of that precious cedar from up north. Rather, he says, use what you've got. Start where you're at. Go to the Judean hills and bring the local wood. If you wait for the finest cedar, you'll wait forever. In other words, don't worry about issues that are of no concern to God. He says, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Wow. You live for yourselves. You brought stuff home, but God made sure to blow it away. Why? He made sure that you wouldn't enjoy your own spoils that you'd worked so hard to obtain while his house was still in ruins. God wasn't going to let his people enjoy their homes when they were willing to let his home lie in ruins. He says, therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Because the Jews had neglected God's temple, the Lord cut off their abundance. God sent lean times to call attention to this inequity that was in the camp. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. 
So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. God's people heard the Lord. They feared the Lord. They obeyed the Lord, and then they praised the Lord. May we do the same. How can we expect God to bless our house if we ignore his house? Often you hear people say, what the Lord asks us to do, he equips us to do. Here's another good one. The Lord's callings are his enablings. Or where God guides, he provides. These are all different ways of stating the same truth. Notice here, as soon as Zerubbabel and company determined to obey, the Lord says, I am with you. He sends his spirit to stir them up. See, God wanted to work alongside them. It wasn't just that he was expecting them to do all the work. No, this would be a shoulder-to-shoulder venture between the people and God. They had a part to play. God had a part to play. The people worked for God, and God worked in the people. Once they obeyed, the Lord sent his spirit to stir them up. But that was the key. They had to obey. They had to take this seriously. They had to make his house a priority. I think this teaches us an important lesson. God gets to work once we get to work. Chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, The date, October 17th, 520 B.C. Now, they renewed the construction on September 21st. So by the time of Haggai's second sermon, they'd been working on this temple for a little more than three weeks. But again, not much had gotten done. During those three weeks, there happened to be three Jewish feasts. Rosh Hashanah, or Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Sukkoth, the Feast of Tabernacles. The fall feast took place during that period of time. These feasts were not an option. The law called for mandatory observance. These feasts were one of the few legitimate excuses for putting off the work. At least half, 13 of the 26 days were holy days. Little tangible progress had been made on the temple. Verse 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now, Ezra chapter 3, verse 12 which parallels this prophecy of Haggai, tells us that 15 years earlier, when the foundation of the temple was laid, and I quote, many of the old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice. Some of the old guys that remembered the glory of Solomon's temple, they started to throw a wet blanket on the people's enthusiasm. These men remembered the glory, the beauty of Solomon's Temple. In comparison, the temple being built by Zerubbabel looked like a hut. I'm sure some of the workers wondered, why bother 
If our resources are this limited, if our efforts are this meager, we might as well just shut down the construction. Oh boy, this is how I used to feel whenever I'd go to one of the pastor's conferences out in Southern California. I'd look at the larger churches with bigger numbers and I'd come back so discouraged. What God was doing in our church was so meager, so hut-like in comparison. My sour attitude would throw a wet blanket over my own enthusiasm. And yet this kind of comparison wasn't fair to Zerubbabel. Solomon started with far more wealth and resources. Zerubbabel had $60,000 to work with. At today's prices, the gold and silver in Solomon's temple was in excess of $10 million. And yet Zerubbabel was faithful to obey God in all that God had called him to do even if that all was not much. Haggai said that in building this temple, Zerubbabel and company were bringing pleasure and glory to God. Now who's calling that nothing? What the old geezers had called irrelevant, God called significant. Whitey Herzog is a Hall of Fame baseball manager who led both the Cardinals and the Royals to World Series championships. In his heyday, he was called the greatest manager of all time, which was a claim that he would always dispute. Herzog said that the only way to decide the best manager would be to give several managers the exact same players over the exact same period of time and compare results at the end of the year which of course would be an impossible task. But the same is true of pastors, I've found. To decide the most successful, you'd have to place every pastor in the same community, with the same congregation, the same facilities, the same resources, et cetera, et cetera, then come back in five years and compare the health of the different congregations. My point is, is that this comparison game, this is tricky business. I suggest you not go down that path. Folks in ministry need to learn to do what God calls them to do, where he calls them to do it with what he has given them to use. We need to stop listening to the old timers, to the call to compare. God's plan for each of us is unique. This kind of comparison is a sin. See, ministry is a lot like marriage. Start comparing your spouse with others, you'll always be able to find someone with more money, somebody who's better looking. Well, I mean, Kathy could find somebody with more money, but better looking. I'm not so sure. I guess that's what keeps her coming back. Married folks, though, they have to believe that their spouse is God's choice for them. You have to believe that. You have to have a conviction. Comparison is a killer of joy. It's a kill joy. That's what it is. Haggai believed, even if our temple isn't much in the eyes of man, our obedience is going to bring God pleasure and glory. And for that reason alone, let's obey. We have a chance here to bring God pleasure and glory. Why not? Don't listen to the critics. Don't listen to the pessimists. Rather than join the poo-poo club, sign on to the faithfulness club. Haggai says in verse 4, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Don't you love that? 
three times, the Lord tells them to be strong. When someone tries to knock the wind out of your sails, stand strong on your convictions. You see, the cure for comparison is conviction. Haggai says, be strong and work. Just keep working, man. Just keep doing what God has called you to do. Have some conviction. Most times the key is to keep our nose to the grindstone. Once there was a Bible college student, he complained to his professor. He said, man, this book we're reading, it's boring, man. It's dry. The professor replied, if the book is dry, why don't you dampen it with a little sweat from your own brow? And the same is true for us. When our soul gets a little dry, we need to apply some sweat from our own brow. Stay at it. Be strong and keep working. The only time success comes before work is in the dictionary. In the past, when I've gotten bummed out over a lack of tangible results, whenever I've thought of hanging it up, I've discovered the best cure for discouragement is just to keep working. Just get back out there. Just stay at it. If you keep working, you won't have time to lick your wounds and indulge in self-pity. Be strong and stay at it. The work keeps you focused in the right direction. Verse 5. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Here's a reason for you to keep working. Because God's spirit is at work in you. You know, it's interesting here, the Lord references a 900-year-old promise made at Israel's exodus from Egypt. And yet it's still in force. God's promises stand the test of time. The promise he's made to you is still in force. And when God's spirit is among us, no matter what we've accomplished thus far, the best is yet to come. Stick with it. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. What a phenomenal revelation to Zerubbabel. You see, the Jewish old timers had focused on the past. They were looking backwards, but God is looking forwards. He wants Zerubbabel to look to the future. Physically speaking, his temple would be nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple. But here the Lord assures him that his temple will eclipse in glory Solomon's temple. The theme of this sermon that Haggai is preaching is don't be short-sighted. Now, it's interesting. He says that Zerubbabel's temple will be more glorious than Solomon's. I'm sure the people scratched their head and said, I wonder how. According to the Babylonian Talmud, five items were missing from Zerubbabel's temple that were present in Solomon's, significant items. First, the Ark of the Covenant where the law was kept, the literal throne of God over which the Shekinah glory hovered. The ark was gone from Zerubbabel's temple. Second, the holy fire on the sacrificial altar. 
Third, the Shekinah glory, God's visible presence, was not in Zerubbabel's temple, uh, it, whereas before it was in Solomon's. Fourth, the spirit of prophecy, the prophetic gift provided by the Holy Spirit. And then fifth, they said that the Urim and the Thummim, the special stones that the priests would use to discern God's will, this wasn't in Zerubbabel's temple. And yet despite these items missing, here God says that the latter temple will be more glorious than the former. How can that be? Well, the answer is in this phrase, the desire of all nations. The Jewish rabbis referred to this as a title for the Messiah. And it was to Zerubbabel's temple that Jesus... God incarnate, God in the flesh, would come and pay a visit. Remember, Jesus walked the halls of Zerubbabel's temple. This was the temple standing when Jesus was on the earth in the first century. Jesus walked its halls. Jesus taught in its porticos. Jesus is the desire of all nations. He visited this temple. And it was the presence of God's Son that more than made up for whatever this temple lacked in stature and trimmings. Jesus is what gave it a greater glory. And you know, the same can be said for a church. Regardless of its size, its programs, its other tangible qualities, what makes it important is who visits it. If Jesus joins us on Sunday, if his presence fills up every corner of this building... Who are we to call it nothing? When Jesus is in the house, it doesn't matter what the house itself looks like. The story is told of a Scottish pastor who was so discouraged he turned in his resignation. The elders, they came to him and they asked him why. He said, because we haven't had any conversions this year except we, Bobby Moffat. Turns out we, Bobby, would later become known as Robert Moffat the great missionary to Africa, responsible for opening up the continent to the gospel. You see, the Scottish preacher had been short-sighted. What he thought was a wasted year of ministry had actually produced tremendous fruit. Here's the lesson. You can't always judge ministry success by tangible measurements. Here the Lord is saying to Zerubbabel, don't worry about building an elaborate temple. A lack of money is no problem. If I wanted an elaborate temple, I could build one, God says. He reminds them, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. No, what he needs for them to do is to obey where he has them and to use what he's given them. And the same is true for us. If we compare our hundreds to other churches' thousands, we could get discouraged. But if Jesus shows up among us, if Jesus is working in this church and working in this community of believers, who are we to quibble? If the desire of all nations is in the house, something holy and something special is happening that I want to be a part of. This is why God says to us, be strong and work. Don't worry, worry about new cedar. God can provide us what he wants us to have. Just go up to the mountain and bring some wood and build this temple. And then he adds, when all that can be shaken is shaken, what we build will stand. Notice the reference here in verses 6 and 7 to the judgments of the end times. God says, once more, 
And then he adds, I think for us, in a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake the nations. As God did in the days of Noah and at the exodus from Egypt, God will again cause an environmental shakeup. Global cataclysms will rock the planet and its nations. Just read Revelation 6 through 19. Our new world order will become permanently disrupted. And this shakeup is going to cause men to look up. They'll recognize the error of their ways, their sin, their rejection of Jesus. And they'll turn back to the desire of all nations. Jesus will be the desire of all nations in that day The Lord of hosts will bring the world back to Jesus and he will fill up Zerubbabel's temple with glory. Of course, Zerubbabel's temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But it could be that God sees Zerubbabel's temple as part of a succession of temples that will eventually climax with the millennial temple spoken of in the last chapters of Ezekiel. This is the temple that Jesus builds when he returns to earth and establishes his kingdom. I once saw a new church building where the architects had embedded into the new structure the cornerstone from their former building. It was a symbol of how the old building had played a role in the establishment of the new. And it could be that this future temple will somehow display the cornerstone from Zerubbabel's temple. In other words, the new will be an extension of the old. At the end of the age, the nations will realize that they put their hope in the wrong person and in all the wrong things. They'll repent. The nations will desire Jesus. They'll come to worship him in his glorious temple. They'll experience his peace. And in the end, they'll look on at that temple and they'll declare it more glorious than Solomon's temple had ever been. What a day that will be. And as fascinating as these verses are, you should know that these verses have had a great impact on our own church. In 1995, as we contemplated relocating from Stone Mountain Village to our current location, it was a big decision. God used these verses to confirm to me that it was his will for us to move. His spirit personalized these promises to me. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give you peace. God was saying to me that if we obeyed him, if we built, that we would see greater things happen in this new building than we had seen in the old. And now 22 years later, I can assure you that we have. That God has fulfilled his promise. And this place has been a place of peace. During the construction of this building, I came out to the work site one night just to kind of check on what was happening. And I found a young man, I'll never forget it. He was sitting out here on a pile of uh, building materials. And he was praying. We started talking. He told me there was just something peaceful about this property. It was a confirmation for me. Even before the building had, had started, God was confirming his promise to us. And over the years, on these grounds, in this building, troubled souls have found God's perfect peace. And I'll share one more thing with you. If you go back 
And if you look at the sidewalk over here on the north side of the building, you'll find a scripture reference. Haggai 2 verse 9. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give you peace. You'll find that scripture reference, Haggai 2 verse 9, in the concrete back there. I'll never forget, while the cement was still wet, I grabbed a stick. And I I wrote Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 in the concrete as a memorial to the promise that God had given our church. It's still there. Kind of faded a little bit, but still there. Verse 10 begins Haggai's third sermon. The date is December 18th, 520 B.C. Its theme is the people's self-righteousness. Now on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat, In the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. In other words, holiness is non-communicable. Just hanging out, just rubbing shoulders with holy people doesn't make you holy. Holiness isn't contagious. Hey, you can swim in a sea of holy water, and it's not going to make you any holier. You can build a temple or even be part of a church, something that is holy to God, but it won't make you any more holy than when you started. Hanging out with holiness doesn't make you holy. God makes you holy when you give yourself to him. But Haggai has another question, verse 13. If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. On the other hand, evil is communicable, transmittable, transferable. See, this is how we obtain a sin nature. We inherited it from Adam. He passed it down to us. And it's true. Keep hanging out with evil people and you'll develop evil habits. It seldom happens in reverse. Putting a rebellious child with compliant kids rarely makes the rebels submissive. It's more likely to sour the good kids. One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. Evil is contagious. You can contract it from your associates at work. Did you know you can catch evil from the TV or from the website you keep visiting? This is why we need to stay away from evil. Well, then Haggai answered and said, So is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. In other words, the good work that they were doing in building up the temple didn't cancel out the evil in their hearts. What they were doing with their hands didn't cancel out what was in their hearts. In building a holy temple, they weren't becoming more righteous, more holy. They were becoming more self-righteous. And this is the danger in church work. It's a danger for you and me. Just being around holy things, just being around religious stuff doesn't make us more holy. It's more likely to make us more haughty. 
Oh, look at me. Oh, see what I'm doing for the Lord. Pride can seep in even while we're serving the Lord. It's true that our hard work brings pleasure and glory to God, but the credit for the success in ministry should always go to God alone. He is the enabler. As he said to Zechariah, or through Zechariah to Zerubbabel, it's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And then verse 15, and now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. Ephahs and baths were an ancient measurement. In other words, when they were living for themselves, God saw to it that their yield was reduced. Their self-centeredness netted 50% less grain and 60% less oil. He says, I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that, is, that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. Now remember, Haggai is delivering this sermon in the month of December. This means that they've already sowed their seed. The harvest that they're expecting is yet to come. It's in the spring. And here God is promising to reverse their recent failures and bring about a great blessing because of their obedience. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, on the same day, on the 24th day of the month saying, in other words, on the same day, Haggai now delivers his last sermon. And from its contents, you can get the impression that Zerubbabel has been second-guessing himself. Haggai here reminds a doubting leader of the glorious promises that lay ahead. Apparently, Zerubbabel was a bit timid. He had some insecurities. I'm sure that he would have struggled to finish the temple if it had not been for the visions of Zechariah and for Haggai's encouragement. And so, verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. This again is a description of the end times. When Jesus returns, the Gentile nations will be conquered. They'll be brought low. And the throne will return to Israel and to Jerusalem. He says, in that day... Says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, the signet ring was the king's seal. It was the equivalent of his signature. Zerubbabel here is being told that in the future, rather than second-guessing himself, he's going to be making official decrees on behalf of God. He's going to be blessed with authority 
and with, uh, with anointing. God will trust Zerubbabel to make decisions and to be his representative. During World War II and the bombing of Britain, the situation looked grim. One day, two Englishmen, they met in the street. When one said to the other, things look pretty dark, don't they? To which the man replied, but sir, the king says there's hope. What's the king say? See, Zerubbabel was not a self-confident man. He was a timid man. But there was hope for him because the king said so. The same is true for us. There's hope for us because Jesus said so. This is why we need to be strong. That's why we need to keep working for God is with us. But note the time of Zerubbabel's promotion. God will give to Zerubbabel his signet ring in that day. This is a biblical expression for the end times, the kingdom age. When Jesus returns, when the Gentiles are, are destroyed and God's throne has prevailed. When Jesus is reigning, when Messiah returns, we're told here that Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring. This is amazing, really. But apparently, Zerubbabel, living in the year 520 B.C., is being groomed for a job in the future, in the kingdom age, thousands of years yet to come. And what an encouragement this should be to us. You know what this means? It means you be faithful today in the post God has you, no matter how insignificant you think your ministry might be, and God will reward you with promotion in the future. Well, in conclusion, God wants to build a temple. He wants to build a temple today, and each of us has a part to play. So, let's turn from our self-centeredness. Let's cease from our short-sightedness. Let's repent of our self-righteousness. And let's stop second-guessing our usefulness. Instead, let's hear the word of the Lord Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and build this temple. Let's be strong. Let's work, for God is with us.